Look, I know there's a lot of noise in Washington. There always is, but it seems to me a little more than usual now. A whole lot of hyperbole, a lot of heat, and I'm here today to try to set some things straight if I can. We're at an inflection point. Every anywhere from 40 to 80 years in America, there's an inflection point. We have to choose what direction we're going to go, what we're going to do. Not not Democrat, Republican, but what are we going to who we're going to be? President Biden makes the case for his economic agenda during a stop in the swing state of Michigan. But with Democrats on Capitol Hill divided over how to move forward on infrastructure, the question is, when will we see a bill on the president's desk? Plus, a Facebook whistleblower gives Congress rare insight into the inner workings of the social media company. The question is, how will lawmakers tackle some of the issues she addressed? And what is certainly my favorite story of the day, the Red Sox beat the Yankees to advance the American League Division Series. The questions are, how will they hold up against the Rays? And will I ever stop smiling? It's way too early for this. Good morning, and welcome to Way Too Early, the show that promises not to gloat much. I'm Jonathan Lemire on this Wednesday, October 6th. We'll start with the news. The Senate is expected to hold a procedural vote later today on a House-passed bill to suspend the nation's debt without GOP support. Four sources with knowledge of the discussions tell NBC News that Senate Democrats have considered creating a new exception, a so-called filibuster carve-out, to bypass the 60-vote threshold needed to suspend the debt ceiling. The challenge would be whether Democrats have the support of all 50 senators in their party to change the rules. We could prevent a catastrophic default with a simple majority vote tomorrow. If Republicans would just get out of the damn way, we could get this all done. I implore them one more time not to play Russian roulette with the American economy. Ask Mitch McConnell. The bottom line is it's very simple. It's on his shoulders. We have been we are willing to cast the 50 votes ourselves. It's up to him. All he has to do is get out of the way. They said they're perfectly prepared to do the job themselves. The easiest way to do that is through the reconciliation process. We're going to stay here till we get this done. President Biden spoke to reporters, including myself, multiple times yesterday in Michigan about the debt ceiling fight. Here's some of what he had to say. McConnell refused, Senate Minority McConnell refuses to cooperate. Should Senate Democrats do this by reconciliation? What happens next? Well, quite frankly, there's not many options if they're going to be that irresponsible. There's not many options. There's not much time left to do it by reconciliation. I don't think they're going to end up being that irresponsible. I can't believe it. Are Democrats considering using a nuclear option to raise the debt limit? Using a carve-out with the filibuster to raise the debt limit? Oh, I think that's a real possibility. I'll be on the phone until this is finished. And maybe meeting in person. To the infrastructure bill now, where the price gap seems to be narrowing between progressive and moderate Democrats. Two sources tell NBC News that in a Monday phone call with President Biden, progressives indicated they would support whatever top-line number the president could get to. Although the group is still pushing for a $3.5 trillion publicly, sources say they told the president on Monday that $2.5 trillion should be enough to ensure all their desired programs make it into the package. That leaves about a $3 billion gap between the progressive price tag and the number President Biden reportedly believes he can get moderate senators Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin to agree to. Manchin was asked yesterday about accepting a bill of that size. 
president floated a price tag for reconciliation of about 1.9 to 2.2 trillion dollars. Is that something that you could be open to? We've been talking about everything. Everyone's talking. There's still negotiations. Everyone's talking about a price. Let's talk about what needs to be done. So it sounds like you're not ruling out that price tag. Well, I'm not ruling anything out, but the bottom line is I want to make sure that we're strategic, we do the right job, and we don't basically add more to the uh, concerns we have right now. While President Biden and congressional leaders acknowledge the top line number will need to come down, little has been said about where the cuts will happen. This has left lobbyists and interest groups analyzing recent comments made by the president and his team, according to The New York Times, searching for clues about the bill. The Times says a fact sheet handed out by the White House yesterday left off what was once a cornerstone of President Biden's plans, a paid leave program for workers. The president also failed to mention paid leave during a speech yesterday in Michigan. Joining us now, co-founder of Punchbowl News and depressed Yankee fan, John Bresnahan. John, you're a good sport for being here. We'll give you 30 seconds to vent about the Yankees at the end. But let's start with the news first. Uh, let's, the, the, these two bills that we've been talking about so much, the infrastructure bill, the reconciliation bill, seems like perhaps progress being made on the Hill. You know better than most. What's the outlook, outlook right now for these bills passing by, say, the end of this month? You know, I still think it's it's difficult to see them actually getting through the House and Senate by the end of the month. Um, there's so much negotiation going on. As you you guys did a great job setting this up, um, they would still they would still need to draft everything, go over the legislation, pass it through the House and Senate. There are time limits because of the process they're using this reconciliation process. So, uh, and the infrastructure bill has already been passed. In the in the Senate, it just needs to go through the House. So I mean, they, there, there's a chance, but you know, drafting takes a long time. I'm, I'm still I still think they you know getting it done by the end of the month is ambitious, but clearly, clearly they're making progress. The president is weighing in on this personally. The White House is closely involved. Senator Schumer, Speaker Nancy Pelosi, they're trying to get a top line number together, get their moderates and their conservative uh, progressives on the same page. Once they have the top line number, they can really fill in all the details. Right. It certainly seems like everyone involved is willing to be a little more patient, perhaps, uh, than it looked uh, a week or so back. Uh, Brez, turning back to the, the debt ceiling, um, it certainly doesn't seem yeah. like Mitch McConnell is going to be changing his mind anytime soon. So we're here. There seems to be new, new momentum, perhaps, for this filibuster carve-out solution. Tell us what you know about that. Would that work? And do you think Senate Democrats have enough votes to make it happen? Yeah, this became the, you know, there was there was a lot of talk about the filibuster yesterday, but this became a real hot issue after uh, the president's comments last night. when We talked about this real possibility. This will become the dominant issue. So today at around uh, 2.30, they'll vote on a debt limit bill on a, on a cloture vote, on a procedural motion to try to move forward on the, de- on the debt limit. Republicans are going to block it because they don't like the path that the Democrats are using, the procedure. They want them to use something called reconciliation. And which is, you know, pass it all on their own, no Republican votes at all. And so uh, this is, you know, this is this is a fight that outside of D.C. no one cares about. They just see problems here. But this could be enough to inspire the Democrats to make some changes to the filibuster. They're not there yet. Joe Manchin, as you showed, and Kirsten Sinema have been opposed to getting rid of the filibuster. And the reality is, they do a carve out for the filibuster. They're going to get rid of the filibuster. If you do it, if you carve out for one thing, they're going to end it entirely. So that's the real debate that they're going to have. So I, I still have a hard time seeing them 
getting rid of the filibuster, but this is on the table. The president has put it in the middle of the of, of the of the discussion right now. Schumer has to look at it. Democrats have to look at it. This is a crisis. We're going to hit this debt limit on October 18th. Congress needs to act. And, and you know, time is running out. It's the sixth. They only have 12 days right. to do this. Right. And certainly I don't think there's much doubt that Mitch McConnell would do this if the shoe was on the other foot. Sure. But you're right. If the carve out happens for this, maybe it happens for voting rights and things like that. All right, John, as promised, you've got 30 seconds to vent about the New York Yankees. It's a very Red Sox centric program here, but the floor is yours. Talk to us about Aaron Boone, Garrett Cole and three hundred and twenty four million dollars. you got to pay that oh guy. My God. You know, I love Cole. He had a great year. He did, you know, and Judge last night said he wants to be a Yankee forever. So I, I think we make that happen. Cole, I'm not blaming for this. Yankees need to redo their whole organization. They need to fire Aaron Boone. They need to fire Brian Cashman, the general manager, fire the manager, start all over. They got to dump a bunch of guys. They just got to get back to the winning ways. This is just, you know, they haven't been to the World Series since 2009. It's killing Yankee fans. We're dying. So, so know this, that Yankee fans are dying inside. We're on TV on the outside, but inside we're dead. So just know that. You dying inside and fellow, your fellow Yankee fans dying inside gives me life. I just want to say that. <laughs> I really do appreciate you being here. And I will note, this is now three straight playoff matchups. The Red Sox have beaten the Yankees. Mm -hmm. Thank you, John Bresnahan of Punchbowl News. Still ahead, new reporting on just how many lives have been saved across the country thanks to coronavirus vaccinations. And later in the show, I'll be joined by Michigan Congresswoman Debbie Dingell on the heels of President Biden's visit to her state yesterday. We'll be right back with so much more. A new federal report shows the COVID-19 vaccine saved thousands of lives among older or disabled Americans, even within its first few months of rollout. According to an analysis from the Department of Health and Human Services, from January through May, vaccinations prevented about 265,000 cases, 107,000 hospitalizations, and 39,000 deaths among Medicare recipients. The report also found that for each increase of 10 percentage points in a county's vaccination rate, the number of COVID hospitalizations and deaths among Medicare recipients fell 11 to 12 percent. South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham was shouted down by his Republican constituents at a Saturday event in Somerville for suggesting that they get vaccinated against the coronavirus. If you haven't had the vaccine, you ought to think about getting it because since you're my age, I didn't tell you to get it, you ought to think about it. Well, I'm glad I got it. 92% of the people in the hospitals in South Carolina are unvaccinated. Oh. Graham, who was vaccinated in December and suffered a breakthrough coronavirus infection this summer, credited the vaccine with keeping his symptoms mild. He went on to agree with the crowd in the video that vaccination mandates were probably unconstitutional, adding Republicans had to take back Congress to stop them. A deeply depressing scene. While COVID-19 cases are slowly dropping nationwide, the crisis is growing more dire in Alaska. The Delta variant is fueling the current surge in new cases, which has far outpaced last winter's peak. NBC News correspondent Ellison Barber has the latest from Anchorage. Across the country, COVID cases and hospitalizations are dropping. But in Alaska, a very different story. These are people's moms, dads, sisters, brothers. For much of the pandemic, health officials say the state's geography was an advantage. Sparsely populated villages and strict travel restrictions kept cases relatively low. But now Delta is surging, 
Alaska's biggest hospitals are overwhelmed, and the state's unique geography is working against it. We'll travel on average about 150 miles one way to access care. Our hospitals are hundreds of miles apart. To get them supplies and resources, anything from testing to oxygen can be a huge logistical barrier. Over the last two weeks, Alaska has seen the highest rise of COVID cases in the country. COVID deaths spiked 414%. Almost exclusively the patients that we're meeting with COVID are unvaccinated. The state's crisis standards of care has been activated at 20 hospitals, including Alaska Native Medical Center, where some patients have been forced to wait days for beds. At this hospital, they can't let any visitors inside right now, except for very few exceptions. So we're going to go inside the COVID ward outside of the hospital. They're going to take us in through this video system, the same system that families use when they are talking to COVID patients who they are unable to visit. Nayrid Wells lost her best friend to COVID last year. Last week, her cousin also died. He wasn't vaccinated. I'm just so sick of people dying, you know. We've lost five family members. So she's urging others to roll up their sleeves, trying to curb the spread of COVID, now tightening its grip on Alaska. Still ahead, the Red Sox send the Yankees packing, and now Boston moves on to face the Tampa Bay Rays in the AL Division Series. We have all the wonderful highlights from last night's game, next in sports. Thanks so much for just being a defense first guy. Kevin Ploiecki with a one-out double. One pitch. Bogart sends a drive to center field and deep. Gardner turns around and watches it fly. That's Xander Bogart sending the pitch from Yankee ace Garrett Cole out in center field for a two-run homer that gave the Red Sox an early lead in last night's American League wildcard game. Kyle Schwarber extended Boston's lead two innings later, tagging Cole for that solo shot. The $324 million right-hander is pulled after just two more batters, needing to be bailed out of a third-inning jam. Meanwhile, Red Sox starter Nathan Evaldi recorded eight strikeouts, taking a shutout into the sixth before he gave up a solo home run to New York's Anthony Rizzo. They cut Boston's lead to two, three to one. Aaron Judge reached on an infield single the next to bat, and Evaldi exited the game with a runner on first, setting the stage for a would-be Bucky Dent moment for Giancarlo Stanton. Slider, his favorite weapon. Stanton hits one to the monster again, and that one's off the top of the wall. Judge streaking around third. The throw to the plate is in time to get him. Perfect execution. Out. For the second time in the game, Stanton sends a liner to left that bounces off the green monster instead of going over the wall. The Red Sox sent the relay home. Kike Hernandez is Andrew Bogarts, and they cut down Judge at the plate, a turning point in the game. Stan would eventually hit one out, but not until the bottom of the ninth and after Boston had tacked on another three runs. The Red Sox defeat the Yankees 6-2 to two to win the AL wildcard. The sun is shining brighter today. The Sox now advance to face the AL East champion Tampa Bay Rays in the American League Division Series. That, schedule is, that series is scheduled to begin tomorrow night in St. Petersburg, Florida, uh, coming a few hours after the Houston Astros host Chicago White Sox in Game 1 of the other ALDS matchup. Meanwhile, the Los Angeles Dodgers will host the St. Louis Cardinals in the National League wildcard game tonight. A franchise record tying 106-win season for L.A., comes down to the single-game matchup to decide which team will face the NL West champion San Francisco Giants in the National League Division Series. It'll be a good one tonight in L.A. But the Dodgers are going to be going for a repeat title without ace pitcher Clayton Kershaw. 
Kershaw, multi-time Cy Young winner, is not expected to return for the playoffs uh, after he suffered an injury to his throwing arm, which ended the left-hander's last season with the club before he enters free agency. Dodgers first baseman Max Muncy will also likely miss the entire postseason after injuring his left elbow during Sunday's regular season finale. Time now for the weather. We know that the six New England states are happy today. We'll see if they get rain. Uh, but Bill Karens, we assume we'll have good weather from Southern California for that game. But give us a sense uh, as to what else is going on as we all watch Dodgers Cardinals tonight. Yeah, that'd be a fantastic game. Can you believe that the Dodgers win too? Then they got to play the Giants, and you got like 106 and 107 win teams playing each other in the first round. That's like that's crazy. It's like never, never ever happened in baseball before. So let's take you through today's forecast and get you right through uh, the upcoming weekend. We had a lot of heavy rain in Alabama yesterday. We had flash flood warnings in the Birmingham area. We're waking up this morning to numerous areas of rain through Tennessee, North Georgia, and a few spots there getting some very heavy rain near Pensacola. So we have a couple flash flood warnings. Those. Areas in Maroon, just to the west side, east side there of Pensacola and north of Pensacola. 14 million people still in this flash flood watch. An additional rainfall through Friday. Unfortunately, the southeast is going to continue to get soaked up to two to three inches from Atlanta up to Asheville, all the way from Savannah to Charleston. It's not going to rain the entire time, but you're going to have periods of rain that you're going to have to deal with. So, uh, well, that's probably the biggest uh, weather hazard out there as the, over the next two days. So, for today's forecast, not bad in Boston, uh, Hartford, all the way through Philadelphia. Philadelphia, New York, no problems. Middle of the country, still very warm. San Antonio, 92 degrees. Summer hasn't ended there yet. And much cooler in Seattle, only 57 degrees today. Now, tomorrow, beautiful day in the Northeast as the sunshine returns. Still some clouds and rain from Atlanta all the way through St. Louis. And how does this fall weekend look? The lingering rain and storms and clouds will continue in the Southeast. Not a good weather to be at the beach throughout the southeast this upcoming weekend. The waves will be kind of rough and they'll be kind of cloudy with on and off rain. We also have a system that's going to bring some rain to the west and that's great for the firefighters still fighting a lot of fires out there. On Saturday the rain lingers in the Carolinas to Virginia. Still sunny and warm. Look at St. Louis and Kansas City. 90 and 91 on Saturday this weekend. That's not pumpkin picking weather. And then on Sunday it looks like some clouds and showers could possibly linger from Virginia all the way up through southern portions of New England. So not not a horrible weekend coming, Jonathan, but uh, we'll have to watch that Sunday forecast uh, for all those sporting events in, uh, in the Northeast on Sunday. Bill Karens, we really appreciate it. Thank you, sir, and have a great day. Still ahead, lawmakers and Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg are reacting to the testimony of a former Facebook employee turned whistleblower. We're going over all the big takeaways from yesterday's Senate hearing and what changes could be on the way for the social media giant. But before we go to break, we want to know, why are you awake? Email your reasons to way too early at msnbc.com or tweet me at John Lemire. Be sure to use that hashtag way too early. We'll read our favorite answers later in the show. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Way Too Early. It's just before 5.30 on the East Coast, 2.30 out West. I'm Jonathan Lemire. The day after a worldwide social media outage reminded us just how far-reaching Facebook has become, a company, company whistleblower testified on Capitol Hill, describing to a Senate committee just how dangerous she believes the social network is, especially for the younger generations. NBC News senior Washington correspondent Hallie Jackson reports. 
Facebook under fire. The company's leadership knows how to make Facebook and Instagram safer, but won't make the necessary changes because they have put their astronomical profits before people. Whistleblower Frances Haugen insisting Congress must act against a company she says is misleading the public, promoting hateful and harmful content, holding its CEO to account. In the end, the buck stops with Mark. Haugen left Facebook in May, armed with tens of thousands of internal documents, including some, she says, showing the company knows its Instagram app can contribute to eating disorders in teen girls, a characterization Facebook has disputed. It's just like cigarettes. Teenagers don't have good self-regulation. They say explicitly, I feel bad when I use Instagram and yet I can't stop. Um, We need to protect the kids. And to do that, Haugen says, Facebook must share more about its algorithms, which determine what content pops up on your feed. Incentivized, she says, towards problematic posts. This inability to see into Facebook's actual systems and confirm that they work as communicated is like the Department of Transportation regulating cars by only watching them drive down the highway. From Facebook, an aggressive defense. And what you have here today is a former employee who didn't work on these issues and was just at the company a couple of years, uh, mischaracterizing some documents that she stole. It seems to me an attempt by Facebook to undermine her credibility. Is your strategy to go after the messenger and not the message? Hallie, my strategy is, and our strategy is to make sure that we're giving people accurate information about what we're doing. Facebook actually has been calling for regulation for more than two and a half years now. On regulating big tech, rare bipartisan agreement. After years of hearings, Congress calling yet again for changes. Those could include internal research released to outside parties, stronger federal oversight that demands transparency from big tech, or a requirement platforms share their proprietary algorithms with regulators. If Facebook is serious and honest, There will be legislation for them to support on privacy, on oversight, on protecting children. We'll see whether they're serious. I hope they are, because big tech is facing its big tobacco moment. It is a moment of reckoning. Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg shared publicly an internal memo to staff on Tuesday, writing in part, quote, We care deeply about issues like safety, well-being, and mental health. It's difficult to see coverage that misrepresents our work and our motives. At the most basic level, I think most of us just don't recognize the false picture of the company that's being painted. Joining us now for much more on this, media reporter at Axios, Sarah Fisher. Sarah, good morning. Thanks so much for being here. Uh, let's talk. Uh, start with uh, Ms. Haugen's testimony and what do you think the big takeaways uh, from it are? I think the biggest takeaway was that she was really good. I mean, she's somebody who seemed competent, who seems like she knows what she was talking about. Even if Facebook tries to discredit her, I think the public felt like she was well received. That's one big takeaways about Facebook. She says that Facebook knows that the company does harm for kids and that's not doing enough to address it. She says that the company's algorithms prioritize profit over public safety, and that's why they should be made publicly available or be made available to regulators to scrutinize. And then the last big thing is she said that Facebook, you know, overinflates its metrics when it's talking to investors. That's why she filed a complaint with the Securities and Exchange Commission. So those are some three pretty big allegations made by Francis Haugen. And I think lawmakers, for the first time that I've heard listening to these big hearings, Jonathan, actually were receptive and wanted to engage in a meaningful conversation. Normally, that's not the case at these hearings. 
So in terms of, let's talk about what the fallout from these hearings might be. First, internally. You know, Facebook has been pretty resistant to change in the past. Certainly, their, de- their defense the last few days has been pretty defiant uh, in, in, term, in, in terms of what she alleges happened. Uh, do we think they're going to change? And also, what steps might lawmakers actually take this time? There's this chicken and the egg sort of question here. Does Facebook preemptively make changes because they know laws are coming for them, or do they wait for the laws to make changes? In some cases, they go preemptively. So we never passed a political advertising act, but they still made all the changes that the act detailed in 2017. We have not passed national privacy laws, but Facebook has made a few changes to the way that it collects user data. So there's a chicken and the egg here. On algorithms and transparency, For a big tech company, your algorithm is your secret sauce. So you don't want to just be willingly giving that up unless you're being forced to. I think Facebook will continue to do measures around transparency, detailing reports about what they take down and what they don't. But actually giving up the secret sauce, the algorithm code, I don't think they're going to do that unless there's a law that's passed by lawmakers, Jonathan. Yeah, Sarah, that would certainly be a huge deal. Uh, As a last question, just give us an update as to where things stand after that massive outage that Facebook had, which, of course, impacted Instagram and WhatsApp. There was a lot of conversation about how, hey, this isn't just about, like, you can't look at pictures for a few hours. But rather, WhatsApp is a huge way of communication here in the U.S., but certainly even more so around the world. Uh, And it was sort of the vitality of it and the the need for it uh, was really underscored when that outage happened. What's the latest explanation in terms of what happened and what safeguards is the Facebook company taking to prevent something like that from happening again? Yeah, I mean, it's a great point. We didn't talk about antitrust at that hearing, but that surely brought it up into the public conversation when we realized we're so hooked on something that went down for many hours. The latest is this. Monday at 6.30, engineers at Facebook started to revive the network after it was down for about six hours. In terms of reviewing what happened, engineers think that there was a communication lapse between Facebook's routers and what brings Facebook to our websites and phones. They were able to address that by bringing engineers in, And now it seems that the whole network globally is up and running. The question moving forward is, does this become a regular thing for Facebook? We've seen blackouts in the past, but this one was by far the most egregious. And to your point, so many people and businesses rely on Facebook around the world that if this continues to happen, it's going to be a major problem for the tech giant, Jonathan. Sarah Fisher of Axios, thank you so much for being here this morning. That was terrific. Please come back soon. Still ahead, the totally different reason to eat more cheese. Way too early. It's back in a minute. Time now for something totally different. This is the second best story of the day. And we have some Gouda news for all cheese lovers. Yeah. A new study suggests that eating more dairy fat may lower the risk of heart disease. Researchers analyzed blood samples from 4,000 adults in Sweden for 16 years where dairy consumption is among the highest in the world. Adults with higher levels of dairy fat intake biomarkers had a lower risk of cardiovascular disease compared to those who ate less dairy fat. But before you get too excited, one of the researchers poured a little cold water on this, saying, quote, it's important to remember that although dairy foods can be rich in saturated fat, they may are also rich in many other nutrients and can help and can be part of a healthy diet. However, other fats like those found in seafood, nuts and non-tropical vegetable oils can have greater health benefits than dairy fats. The country's largest public library system is doing away with late fees. New York City officials said the city's public libraries will no longer charge late fees and will waive existing fines for overdue books and other materials. 
The city found that fines were an inadequate way to encourage residents to return books and were a barrier to lower-income New Yorkers. A Halloween classic, meanwhile, is now returning to public television after a year on hiatus. It's a Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, will air on PBS this month. Last year, the streaming service Apple TV Plus became the exclusive home of the Peanuts crew, removing the beloved specials from public TV. Following the outrage for pulling the 1966 Halloween special from public airwaves, the streamer allowed for the airing of the Peanuts Thanksgiving and Christmas specials on PBS. It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, is scheduled to air on PBS and PBS Kids at 7.30 p.m. Eastern on Sunday, October 24th. My kids will be watching. It's also, of course, available now to stream on Apple TV+. Still ahead, Congresswoman Debbie Dingell joins us on the heels of President Biden's visit to her state. And as we go to break, a look at this date in history. 42 years ago, Pope John Paul II became the first pontiff to visit the White House, where he was received by President Jimmy Carter. Nyek Benje Buk Pogbaloni. Which, for those of you who do not speak Polish, means, may God be praised. As congressional Democrats look to pass his agenda in Washington, President Biden is trying to sell his Build Back Better plan to the American people, hitting the road. And he last day, yesterday, spoke at a union training facility in Michigan. There, the president sharply criticized those standing in the way of his infrastructure bills. I want to set one thing straight. These bills are not about left versus right or moderate versus progressive or anything that pits Americans against one another. These bills are about competitiveness versus complacency. They're about opportunity versus decay. They're about leading the world or continue to let the world pass us by, which is literally happening. To support these investments is to create a rising America. America is moving. To oppose these investments is to be complicit in America's decline. Joining us now, Democratic Congresswoman Debbie Dingell of Michigan. Congresswoman, good morning. Thanks so much for being here. Certainly we saw just now some of the president's argument that this is something that would benefit all Americans, should bring people together. Uh, and also it's necessary to compete on the global stage, namely with China. I was at that speech yesterday, too. You had a slightly better seat than I did. You were a few rows up. Uh, and we, uh, we know that you have said before, you and some of your colleagues have said you needed to hear more from the president, uh, particularly to talk to moderate Democrats in the House. So, let me ask, start there. Did you hear what you wanted to from the president? And tell us where these bills stand now. So let me say several things. When I said we needed to hear more from the president, the president needed to be speaking to the larger caucus. Tell us exactly where you are and what you want us to do. Did that last Friday. Outline plan. You know, people said, why would he go to Howell, Michigan? It is total, I mean, it is a community and actually going to the operating engineers those were the people that made me know and predict Donald Trump could win Michigan five years ago. They don't think anybody cares about their jobs. They're watching them going away. They want to see someone fight for them. So he came into a city that wasn't necessarily a very friendly city for him to go to. And he was there with the operating engineers that know the importance of both of these bills. They really want the BIF, but they were supportive of both. He gave a strong speech about what is happening to our competitiveness in this country. And put it in those terms. And that's what the American people need to hear and understand. 
And that's what our colleagues need to understand. I thought it was a good event. I think those union workers that men and women that I worry about all the time who think Democrats have forgotten him, he showed that he hasn't reinforced it just like he did in the campaign. And uh, I thought it was a good bet. You were certainly right. When we the motorcade pulled into to Howell yesterday, this union training facility, there were hundreds, if not a couple thousand Trump supporters there uh, who greeted the president rather rudely, shall we say. Um, but I think that was in some ways the point to underscore uh, the message that this is for people everywhere and not just uh, traditional traditional Democrats. Uh, in terms of where things are with the bills, with so much sense, focus has been on those two senators, Manchin uh, and Cinema. of course, there seems like perhaps some movement uh, on the top line number uh, for the reconciliation bill, although Senator Sinema's motivations remain mysterious to to some. Uh, how confident are you right now this is all going to get done? And what sort of timeline do you think we're looking at? So I want to say several things. First of all, I think the caucus is united. And I even think those two senators know failure is not an option. Now, people didn't know what they were working for. They didn't know what they're working for. I have been, I guess, lucky enough to been part of a really intense discussion on Monday, again with him yesterday. He's really focused. He's prepared to get this done, bring people together, and he's not talking about, he's talking, what programs do we need? What do we get off the ground? And I think that that is a very good place to begin. He met with moderate yesterday. I'm also, I love his line, this isn't moderate versus It's not, I don't even know totally where I forget. I believe I'm working with everybody, talking to everybody. I think he's trying really hard. Leadership says we got to get this done. We do. I hope. I think false deadlines got us into trouble last week, but I know people are working really hard to bring this home because we've got to deliver, and the American people need this. They needed it ten years ago, twenty years ago. We got to fix these roads and bridges and get lead out of water pipes and a lot of childcare so women can go back to work. A lot of other. Things. The most immediate crisis, of course, facing Capitol Hill right now is the debt ceiling and the need to uh, pass it and suspend it. Uh, you know, there's some talk in the Senate, some reporting out of yesterday um, about this so-called filibuster carve out uh, that might be a way to deal with this, with Republicans still refusing uh, to cooperate. Uh, let's get you to weigh in. It, it, what are some of the challenges to getting it passed? You know, are, are you concerned about a precedent it could set? Do you think this is, needs to be done? How do you see it playing out? Well, let me be very blunt. What do I think the problems are? Are Republicans who are irresponsible, who know that it has to be raised but don't want to do it? Give me a break. How can you, as a responsible elected official, say, we can't let the government default, but we're not going to do anything about it? This has never happened before. Democrats supported it when Republicans were in charge, and it's irresponsible. So uh, people say, Chuck's got a secret plan. Uh, I know he knows. I mean, none of the Democrats want to let the government fail. So if Republicans would just get out of the way and stop blocking every effort to get it done, that's the, that is why Mitch McConnell is not being sincere. We could just have a straight up and down vote, not have Republicans hold it, uh, block it with a filibuster. Yes, people are out there talking about do you do a carve out on the filibuster. This has to happen. We cannot default in the world. We can't not pay our Social Security checks. And a thousand other things that we all keep talking about. We have to get this done. Congresswoman Debbie Dingell, thank you as always, and we will see you again soon. Earlier in the show. Earlier in the show, sorry, we lost the congressman there at the end. Earlier in the show, we asked that immortal question Why are you awake? Linda emails this snapshot of her brand new grandchild. Beautiful. Mary writes, I'm awake and singing Sweet Caroline. 
Go Boston, Sweet Carolina. For those who don't know, is the song played in the bottom of the eighth inning at Fenway Park every night. Last night, sung with extra gusto. And Nancy shares this photo of her angry cat, writing, Mia is channeling all Yankee fans. Enough said. Sorry, Mia. Sorry, your cat. Not really. Go Sox. Up next, a look at the Axios One Big Thing. And coming up on Morning Joe, more of yesterday's testimony from a Facebook whistleblower and what it could mean for the future of the social media giant. Plus, we'll hear from the chief deputy whip of the House Democratic Caucus, Congressman Dan Kildee, about the latest in the party's stalemate on infrastructure spending. Morning Joe, just moments away.